Okay, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. Okay, kid. Now, there's this little college town in the southern Midwest, which is 15 miles from the nearest interstate. This little town will be the center of national attention on April 8th, 2024, because at 2.01 in the afternoon, the sky will turn black. About a minute in, I was like, this is creepy. This is really weird. And this one coming up in 24, four minutes and eight seconds and getting really dark, that's going to be really creepy. That's Bob Bear talking about another eclipse. Now, he's organizing amateur astronomers nationwide to observe the total eclipse in 2024. And guess what little town surrounded by farms and forests will be the center of the universe the afternoon of April 8, 2024? We'll tell you in a few minutes. Now to work. Surprisingly, there's a large segment of boomers who have not retired, but they're still working now. So many that the director of this senior center says many of the working boomers can't find time to visit the center. Ours are, a lot of ours are still working. We still have some. And they enjoy coming because they're the younger group of, of us. But uh, most of our people are still working. That's Monica Belie. Now, they are still working for themselves, not for the industries that have left this small town of Anna, Illinois. Have you listened to an AM radio lately? A few years ago, I worked at an AM radio station in Nashville, Tennessee, but when two low-power FM transmitters were added, many people switched to the FMs and stopped listening to the AM. Now, on this program, we'll examine the future of AM radio with a professor who spent 50 years in the broadcasting industry. Cole ain't coming back, and neither is AM radio. And he's located in Kentucky. Then Bob Smith hosts a special feature on the legendary Buddy Holly. That will be during the second half of this program. The news is next. Boomer News. I'm Robert Rickman. The baby boom generation is quickly approaching retirement with some of them already 70-plus years old and retired. Still, 41 million of the 71 million strong generation are still working, making up a quarter of the U.S. workforce in total. In rural Illinois, in a county there, some boomers attend a local senior center, but many don't, according to Monica Belie, director of the Sunshine Senior Center in Anna. And a lot of our baby boomers are still working. Oh, they are? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have a few that come, I would say probably less than 10, but uh, most of them are still working, mostly part-time. They have a job somewhere, but most of our, in Union County, are still working. Okay, so that's a little bit different than, than places where the baby boomers are not working, and so they have more time to take uh, advantage of senior activities at the center. I guess a lot of the baby boomers have retired from other counties, but ours, uh, ours are, a lot of ours are still working. We still have some, and they enjoy coming because they're the younger group of, of us, but uh, most of our people are still working. Now, I've noticed uh, a change in Anna, various changes since I worked on WRAJ in the mid-1970s. I've noticed a lot of uh, building to the east, uh, commercial buildings. Uh, I think you've got a Walmart, and uh, you also have various fast food restaurants. Now, you're originally from here. You remember the 70s. Could you describe some of the changes from your perspective? 
As far as out east, there's uh, Joko Pools is out there. We have the bowling alley has moved out there. Uh, they tore the old bowling alley down in here, the one here in town. They've they've moved it out there. Now the Bunny Bread, as far as changes, Bunny Bread has closed. Transcraft has closed. One of the other ones. Floorsheim. Floorsheim. Floorsheim is closed. Um, but out east, things are starting to build out that way a little bit. We're in the church that was built from what? Uh, it was part of the Transcraft group. Um, I think in this building, and I'm not 100% sure, but I think they used to bring the trailers that the, that was made oh, just over on, over on the other side of town. They would bring them over here, and I think they were painted in this building. So you've noticed a lot of change. You've noticed several rather large industries for Anna and Jonesboro close, but then you've also noticed a lot of businesses opening up. Overall, is this good or bad for the community? I would say it's it's good. It's bad losing the, the big businesses, um, but we have a lot of small mom and dad mom and pop type businesses that that are good for union county and a lot of those businesses operated by baby boomers uh yes they are yes they are so when you were saying that uh, many of the baby boomers are still working some of them are still working in their own businesses mm -hmm. yeah yeah they are um we have a few downtown have a few uh, like antique stores and things like that and uh yeah, a lot of the baby boomers are working. Now, what do you think the future will be for your senior center here? I hope our senior center is around for years to come. Um, we have about a little less than the people that used to come, because like I said, a lot of the younger ones are still working. A lot of the older ones are gone now. Uh, but we have a good group, and... Uh, I think, it, I think the senior center will be around for quite a few years. As long as there are seniors. As long as there are seniors, yeah. And there will always be seniors. <laughs> How many people attend the senior center now? We average probably maybe 25 a day in, in the site. Now, we deliver meals also, and we deliver uh, around 60 a day to folks in Union County, to the elderly senior homebound folks. Do you need help? with uh, volunteers we could always use volunteers yeah um volunteers they love to do it because they it, they can go and visit with a senior usually takes about a half an hour maybe to do part of the route that we give them to do unless they like to stay and talk <laughs> <laughs> now becky salazar uh was telling me that um the uh, Egyptian Area Agency on Aging is always looking for volunteers, and then they uh, select the volunteers and send them to the appropriate areas. Have you gotten referrals from the agency? Um, most of our referrals come from right here in town, but we have got referrals um, from Becky, and uh, we'll put them to work doing something. <laughs> That's Monica Belie, director of the Anna Senior Center located in Anna, Illinois, in southern Illinois. And we go on. This from AARP. Co-housing's growing appeal are part 60s counterculture, 
part aughts sharing economy and bound into the American DNA all the way back to Plymouth Rock. That was a quote from a 2015 article in Portland Monthly. The article's focus was the 15 homes of Oregon's Sunlight Holding Company, which dates to the 1970s. It's not as if everyone is my close friend, a longtime resident explained, but there isn't one person who wouldn't be there if I needed him. That's the idea behind Tacoma Village Co-Housing, a 43-household condominium townhouse complex near the Maryland border in northwest Washington, D.C. Since the first owners took residence in 2000, Tacoma Village has solidified into a vibrant, self-governing community that's home to activists, federal, nonprofit, and private sector workers, retirees, young parents and children who live and play on a 1.4 acres of urban infill. By its nature, co-housing is an efficient way to live, reads a Tacoma Village brochure. By owning real estate in common and sharing appliances and tools, each household owns less stuff. For example, each household owns one, 43rd of the lawnmower, and the exercise equipment. AARP Livable Communities sat down with 10 Tacoma Village residents ranging in age from 36 to 76 to learn how the community came together, how residents balance privacy and shared space, and how work does indeed get done by consensus. You can read their thoughts by visiting aarp.org and click on Livable Communities. Hey, you're driving your car on a hot day, and ooh, what's that? It looks like boom, you're in a hole. Pavement buckles can occur when the air temperature changes from moderate to extreme heat, when road construction is cut into segments, creating a space for expansion and contraction. Sometimes that space is not enough, and when that happens, the pavement buckles or blows up, particularly when the pavement is older and weaker. The warmer the temperature, the more the pavement material expands. The sun heats the pavement, and the pavement expands and then buckles. Buckles more commonly occur on older concrete pavements. Blacktop, that's bituminous pavement, is a more flexible material and does not usually blow up, but may create a bump similar to a frost heave, especially in areas where concrete and blacktop meet. When buckles occur, they become a Minnesota DOT priority. Crews who are patching or mowing are reassigned to fix the pavement buckles, and so they say, please be patient. Now, uh, I mentioned the Minnesota DOT. So think about this. Minnesota and Wisconsin have DOTs that have warned about this. So if it happens in two states that border on Canada, where the air is supposedly cooler, then it can happen anywhere. Other news, although most of the deadlines to file for state-issued stimulus payments for the pandemic years of 2020 and 2021 have passed, and most of the money has been distributed, a handful of states are still issuing payments. This is either because they recently authorized new stimulus packages or have yet to distribute all the money they originally allocated. But there are four states that have stimulus payments continuing in 2023. One is Illinois. October 17, 2022 is the last date to submit information to receive the Illinois income tax rebate and property tax rebate, according to the Illinois Department of Revenue. Most of these payments have already been made. However, the state comptroller has indicated that payments will continue until all have been issued. 
Idaho sent out tax rebates and special session rebates in March and September of 2022. Most of the 2022 rebate payments have already been sent, according to the Idaho State Tax Commission, though the agency continues to send more as taxpayers file their returns and become eligible. And then Massachusetts began paying state tax refunds in 2022, and those payments are essentially over. Montana residents might qualify for a property tax rebate of up to $675 and or an income tax rebate equal to the lesser of $2,500 for joint filers. Uh, The state began issuing individual income tax rebates in July of 2023. And finally, New Mexico is offering two types of rebates to residents in 2023, one for taxpayers and one for those who are not required to file tax returns. The income tax rebate amounts to $1,000 for joint filers and $500 for single filers and those who are married and filing separately. Now, you're either hearing this program on FM radio or the OK Boomer podcast, but what about AM radio with a signal that can bounce off the ionosphere at night and be heard hundreds of miles away, such as WLS in Chicago coming in surprisingly 300 miles away in Kentucky, southeast Missouri, and southern Illinois? And AM radio used to sound great in cars, but now it sounds awful in my 2012 Civics. It sounds almost as bad as an old telephone. Now, retired Western Kentucky University professor Dick Taylor tells me that AM radio is going the way of the coal industry in Kentucky. More people were employed in the solar industry at six years ago than they were in the coal industry. And the coal miners were pretty, um, well, they understood this. They said, you know, there's more coal being dug than when I used to work in the coal mines, and there's less people doing it because now they just blow the top off the mountain and scoop it out. They don't go digging through coal veins like they used to. And so I think what we understand is everything has a time and a place. Coal had a time and a place in in the building of America and the world and the Industrial Revolution. I think AM radio had its time and place. And what I always found kind of interesting is at that point when the same number of FM radio signals around the air is AM radio signals. 75% of all listening took place at FM. I wrote about this actually six years ago in an article on my blog that was, Coal ain't coming back, and neither is AM radio. However, Dick Taylor suggests that big city AM radio might be the last to go, because the big cities, such as Chicago, have excellent quality news and information AM stations, and people will keep listening to them. Check out the Dick Taylor blog. Now, that's all one word, and it's all small case thedicktaylorblog.com. On April 8, 2024, a small town in Illinois with a big university will go dark at 2.01 in the afternoon. That's because the town of Carbondale, Illinois is along the path of a total solar eclipse. We'll talk about the totality in a moment. In the lead-up to the 2017 eclipse, Carbondale in the entire southern Illinois region was touted as the eclipse crossroads of America because it was the place where the center line of the 2017 eclipse would cross the future center line of the 2024 eclipse. The exact spot where the two center lines meet is located near Carbondale, which will make the city an attractive destination for eclipse diehards who want to stake a claim to seeing the eclipse near that spot. Now, Carbondale is also known for something else. It is the home of Southern Illinois University, a major research institution. 
Researchers at Southern Illinois University Carbondale will equip, coordinate, and train teams of student eclipse observers across North America, playing a vital role in NASA's plans to study the rare celestial event in April. The team of SIU researchers is led by co-principal investigators Matt Penn and Bob Baer. O.K. Boomer met with Bob on the mid-century modern SIU campus. Bob talked about this ominous word called totality. Yeah, totality is when the moon completely covers the sun. So you get the solar corona, and it's about as bright as a full moon. So um, the start of totality, when you hear people talk about the contacts during the eclipse... First contact is when the moon starts to go in front of the sun. Second contact is when the moon completely covers the sun. And the middle of that time, in between second and third contact, the middle of it is maximum totality. But that whole duration, that four minutes and nine seconds, we call totality. This is the second total solar eclipse in seven years that the United States will see. And we won't see another one until 2045. So we talk about the science a lot, which is, which is good. We learn a lot from these, but the feeling and the experience of a total solar eclipse is something, if you have the opportunity, do not miss that. If you have to drive a little bit to get into the path of totality, do that, because it's something that's just so primal, so sublime to experience. The first one I saw in 2016 in Indonesia, when the sun disappeared, because it looks like the sun disappears. It looks like it's being replaced by a black hole in the sky. And you see this corona that looks nothing like anything you've ever seen before. And that feeling that we get then, that feeling, it's, it's almost undescribable, but it's like a primal fear that we don't understand because we've never, you know, we go generation to generation without experiencing that. And you, you really do understand, okay, the sun's behind the moon, I've been told this my whole life, but it really is because I saw just what just happened here. I think it was when I was in high school. We had an eclipse. I was in Chicago, suburb, Mm -hmm. and we all knew it was coming. We saw it on TV, but I was out in the backyard, and it happened, and it was frightening. Mm -hmm. It suddenly got dark. I'm going, my, because it was sunny. And so I I think I understand what you're talking about, a primal feeling that, that... modern people generally don't have. Yeah, I have a friend, Mike Kentrianakis, who says it's not in our genes because you go generation to generation not seeing an eclipse. So it's not something we've all experienced. And yeah, it gets dark in the middle of the day and you look up and you're like, there's no clouds. What is going on here? And it's just, it it makes most people nervous. Mm -hmm. So you, you start to wonder, okay, is it is, coming back? Is it coming back? That's the first thing. I, <laughs> that's what I was thinking of because when I saw it in Indonesia about a minute in, and it was just a two-minute eclipse, roughly. About a minute in, I was like, this is creepy. This is really weird. And this one coming up in 24, four minutes and eight seconds and getting really dark, that's going to be really creepy. So just be prepared. You're, if you're seeing it with a group, which I, I highly recommend seeing this with a group, um, but you'll look around, you'll see people crying, you'll see some people freaking out. Um, but it's it's just an incredible experience. Okay, now there's a certain university in this area, I forget what the name is, it's Southern, Southern... Yeah, Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. That's in the middle of it, and what is the government asking you to do? 
So the government, we're, we're probably thinking NASA. NASA. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got funding um, from NASA to do what's called the, the DEB initiative or the Dynamic Eclipse Broadcast Initiative. And I'm the co-principal investigator with Dr. Matt Penn. He's the science lead on this, and I'm handling more of the administrative stuff and the citizen science piece of it. And we're putting telescopes all across the country. Uh, we have funding for on the order of 70 telescopes, I think, right now. And they're these little, um, when I say little, they're 40 millimeter objective telescopes. How much do they cost? The full setup is $1,700 per setup, but that includes a computer, um, a computerized tracking mount or a go-to mount that goes to whatever you tell it to go to. You can control it with your cell phone. Um, and then the telescope itself and a pretty high quality imaging camera. So that's the full setup, but a lot of people, you know, they might have their own laptop or some of these amateurs have their own mount. And so to get into this is $1,700 or cheaper. And by the way, we have NASA and NSF or National Science Foundation funding for the equipment. It actually goes out to the volunteers and stays with them. Well, that's nice. Um the, let me get, see if I understand this. What happens is that the computer will decide which way the um, telescope is pointing? Exactly. So go-to mounts, um, when you turn them on, um, the ones that we have, you can connect with a computer or a cell phone. And they have a microcontroller on the mount. And so we synchronize the time and location from your phone, typically, to the mount, and then uh, there's a there's an app and you pick what you want to point at and Normally if everything's set up right it actually goes to it So in our case, we're doing solar observations. So we say go to the Sun and usually it gets pretty close now You need to do a precise what's called a polar alignment with these to make sure that everything tracks right typically you do that at night by pointing them out at the North Star and setting your elevation based on where your latitude is and where you're, where, where you're at on, on the Earth. And so, so at any rate, without getting into too many of the details there, yeah, it'll, it'll point at what we want it to point at, including stars or distant galaxies or whatever, and then it stays on that. It tracks that so that we can do longer exposures or stay on something for a longer amount of time. And OK Boomer will be following Bob and his team up to and during the eclipse. And for those of us in Southern Illinois, there will be a star party from 7 until midnight at SIU's University Farms Saturday, August 5th. You'll look through a telescope at the sun and planets, plus there will be plenty of science activities. And if you are from out of the area, there'll be much more, much more coming up more events, and we'll let you know when they happen. For more information about the Southern Illinois Star Party, check out the SIU events website. And stand by in a few minutes. We'll be hearing Bob Smith with a special on the immortal Buddy Holly. But first, it's break time. Got to get up. Oh, it always hurts when I get up. I think I'm getting old. And we're going to walk to the coffee pot. I always like this little walk. It's refreshing. It gets in my, uh, my aerobics for the day. So let's check the new transmitter. And we're in the transmitter room right now. The new transmitter is about the size of a suitcase. It sends the signal farther. It sounds better. 
whereas the old one was about the size of a walk-in closet. I might be exaggerating, but anyway. Oh, the chief engineer is working on the equipment. He's, um, he's got a uh, big cylinder of nitrogen that's pumped into the coaxial cable that goes up to the tower to the antenna. And what that does is keep moisture from leaking into the uh, antenna and in the coaxial cable. It works very well. And my gosh, he's, he's not pumping it into the antenna. He's pumping it into his mouth. What's so funny about... It's supposed to be nitrogen. It, let me take a look at that canister... That's nitrogen oxide. He's inhaling laughing gas. Now, man, that's no way to behave around a transmitter. Well, at least he's having fun. Now I, now I know why we... Okay, we're going to let somebody take him out of the room. What do you think of that, gang? Okay, Boomer. Hey everybody, it's the White Raven from the Hot 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 Louisiana Gumbo Pot right here on WDBX, Sundays 12 to 2. Join me and all the Gumbo Pot heads where I'll be bringing you all the best music from Louisiana, New Orleans, the Bayou with a little bit okay, of Delta Boomer. Blues thrown in for good measure. So all you swamp rats, grab your Zydeco shoes, meet me in the Gumbo Pot at high noon. We always pass a good time, Chef. Peace, love, and Zydeco. Aye! It Hi, I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. The world is dark enough. So we like to keep it fun and light. Join us for 30 minutes of fact-filled fun every week. On the Off-Ramp Trivia Podcast. You'll hear fascinating facts about history, music, discovery, weird animals, and everything in between. Including little-known facts about well-known people. Each week. Right here on The, the Off-Ramp. Ramp. Find us wherever you get your podcasts or visit us online at theofframp.show. Are you an aspiring author looking to get your book published? Look no further than Tech Time Publishing Company. At Tech Time, we specialize in bringing the best books to readers everywhere. Our team of experienced editors and designers work closely with authors to bring their stories to life, ensuring every book is of the highest quality. But that's not all. TechTime also offers a unique service to translate and narrate books and revenue sharing. This means that our talented team of translators and narrators will be compensated with a share of the book sales. So whether you're an author, translator, or narrator, TechTime is the place to be. Join our community of book lovers and let us help you bring your stories to the world. Visit our website today to learn more. That's TechTime.it. TechTime it. And if you're looking for a first-class Italian translator, check out Laura Squigna. It's spelled S-G-U-I-G-N-A. Laura Squigna, and you can find her on the Tech Time website under Translators. A cup of joe with Robert. Oh, and a cup of tea with Carrie. You need more caffeine, Carrie. Uh. Um... All right, uh, we're going to start out with a thief plays hide-and-seek in supersized Costco robbery. No, I don't like that one. I've got something here. A Colorado right. woman who jammed her finger inside. She jammed her finger into her pocket to mimic. Nope, don't like that one. Okay, how about first responders race to car fire find squirrely perpetrator? What? No. No. No, no. 
Man arrested for washing out girlfriend's potty mouth with soap. Okay, I like that. I one. like that one. A Florida man was arrested Tuesday evening after he took offense with his girlfriend's cursing. The Tampa Bay Times reports John Vincent Caruso had been verbally sparring with his baby mama and grew concerned her cursing would wake the kids. After warning her he'd wash her mouth out with soap for letting the expletives fly. I can't say that word. Expletives. Expletives. Well, you were pr pretty good at it when we had the microphone turned off. <laughs> oh, I know a few words. Anyway, he allegedly sneaked up behind her and squirted dishwashing liquid in her mouth. <laughs> oh, cute. I don't think that's cute. I would have well, never mind. Out of respect for his parents, he later told arresting officers he squirted some in his own mouth for good measure. Don't you know that saying, Robert? Come on. If you say that word one more time, I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap. Uh, what, you want to know the word? What word? The word that I was saying. No. Oh. Despite his Puritan intentions, Caruso was arrested and charged with domestic battery and was thrown in jail. Well, uh, this is Robert Rickman with a cup of Joe. Kerry Boylan with a cup of tea. Sixty years ago this February, a plane carrying one of rock and roll's first singer-songwriters crashed. Some called it the day the music died. Today on the off-ramp, Buddy Holly remembered. Hi, and welcome to The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith. One day early in my career as a young broadcaster interviewing singers and musicians, I realized that again and again I was running into people who knew or who worked with Buddy Holly, men who survived his death that winter morning in February of 1959 and went on with their lives. I was too young to remember Buddy Holly. I was only eight when he died, so he was a legend. It had been 20 years since Rock's first singer-songwriter had had his life cut short, and his stature had grown significantly. Fortunately, I was working in Iowa, where Buddy Holly played his last concert. The second Buddy Holly Memorial Festival was scheduled to take place at the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake. That's where Buddy's last concert took place. So I decided to attend. And there I met yet another person who had a connection to Buddy Holly. This time it was Nicky Sullivan, one of Buddy Holly's guitarists. After I got home, I decided to do a special on these middle-aged men who had known and worked with Buddy Holly in their youth. And that's what today's show is all about. Buddy Holly Remembered. <laughs> Back in July of 1957, I first heard That'll Be The Day, and today that is still my favorite record. I've heard it every day of my life since 1957. There was never, never any uh, pressure to be perfect. Buddy never demanded it of us. 
I think he did of himself, but not out loud. He tried very hard to do, uh, to do what made him happy. The music really was a reflection of his personality and of, of his life. It wasn't just, uh, you know, a few lines strung together for commercialism. It wasn't that at all. It was really folk music of a sort. February made me shiver With every paper I deliver Bad news on the doorstep I couldn't take one more step I can't remember if I cried when I read about his widowed bride But something touched me deep inside the day The music died It wasn't until 21 years after that fateful plane crash near Clear Lake, Iowa that an important piece of Buddy Holly memorabilia came to light. In 1980, searching through some evidence drawers in the basement of the Mason City, Iowa courthouse, the Cerro Gordo County Sheriff Jerry Allen found a wristwatch belonging to J.P. Richardson, known in the 1950s as the Big Bopper, and eyeglasses belonging to Buddy Holly. They were in an envelope. It was from an old coroner's inquest dated back in 1959 and it uh, had the name of Charles Harden Holly and two other members of the group Richie Valens and uh, Giles Richardson and the envelope contained uh, what are obviously uh, Holly's glasses and uh, uh, presentation wristwatch that belonged to Richardson who was better known as the Big Bopper at that time. What did, uh, could you describe the glasses? Or what shape are they in after all these years and being hidden away in the court records? Well, the glasses, uh, the frames are intact. Of course, the uh, lenses are gone, and they bear some uh, scratches and damage, uh, which probably, uh, no doubt, came from the uh, from the crash itself. Uh, the one bow is is uh, broken loose, but uh, the bows are intact. It's a it's the, the distinctive glasses that he wore with the white bows and the angular uh, heavy uh, frame, uh, glasses frame itself. There's no question that that's, uh, in my mind, that that's whose they are. The envelope shows a receipt date of 7 April of 59, which is several months after the crash, which of course happened on February 3rd. And uh, I'm just making a wild guess that uh, this property was turned in at a later time, very possibly was picked up at the crash scene when the snow cover uh, disappeared. This property was not turned into the sheriff's office. It was uh, no doubt given to the coroner, and this was placed in, in, a, in a dead storage area in the basement of this courthouse and uh, that's where it was. I see. Uh, we were looking for some court reporter's notes, which they did use part of this drawer for some old notes, and uh, I didn't find the information I was looking for, but I guess found something a little more significant. The glasses, which I think will be, uh, well, I know they'll be turned back to the family, whether it's Buddy Holly's widow or his mother, uh, that's up to them, but uh, uh, at least the stuff will not be put out on the market as a is an item. Heartbeat, why do you miss when my baby kisses me? Heartbeat, why do you miss when my baby kisses me? 
Legends belong to the people, but somebody has to safeguard that legend, protecting it from harm, misuse, and faulty memories. The Buddy Holly legend is in the hands of a Connecticut man, Bill Griggs, who formed the Buddy Holly Memorial Society back in 1975. Buddy Holly was an original. He did not copy somebody else. He went out and did his own thing. He was one of the few singer-songwriters of the 50s. Most of the artists came along and did somebody else's music, and that was it. Uh, Chuck Berry, Buddy Holly, and a few others were the original singer-songwriters. They wrote their own songs, performed their own songs. Buddy was not afraid to try something new. He would experiment with strings. He would double-track his voice on a mono tape recorder, which was hard to do back in the 50s. And I really, really admire him for that. And ever since I heard that'll be the day for the first time of July of 1957, I've been in love with the man. As with every cult figure, memorabilia, posters, pictures, and recordings of Buddy Holly draw record prices. I am also a record collector, and I've, we're approaching fast 700 different records on Buddy Holly from around the world in my personal collection. I just got a 10-inch LP from Holland for $765, and that's the most I've ever paid up to date. It's called Countrywise. It's the Buddy and Bob days, the very early days, before the Decca days and before the Cricket days. 200 were pressed as a legitimate press over in Holland. It's been on my want list for years and years. I finally got it. As keeper of the Buddy Holly flame, Bill Griggs says he found the movie The Buddy Holly Story to be an enjoyable one. But he does cite three major inaccuracies in the film. They left out Buddy's producer, Norman Petty. They left out one of the crickets, Nicky Sullivan. Now, there's a reason. Uh, in the first book by John Gorosen, John had not met Nicky at the time. And there were not any quotes from Nicky in the book. And I think that was the reason, because the movie was very loosely based on the book. But uh, they left the cricket out of the movie. There were three crickets when they first started. The other one, of course, was the way they depicted Buddy's parents and his preacher, Ben Johnson, in the movie. His preacher was behind him 100%. His parents were behind him 100%. I liked the movie. It was very, very enjoyable. It was fairly factual. There were three major mistakes in the movie and a lot of little ones, but until something else comes along, it's our movie. There is a word for people like Bill Griggs. It's fan, from the word fanatic. And if there ever was a Buddy Holly fanatic in life, it must be Bill Griggs. Back in July of 1957, I first heard That'll Be the Day. And today, that is still my favorite record. I've heard it every day of my life since 1957. It's so easy to fall in love. It's so easy to fall in love. So here I go, breaking all of the rules. It seems so even though he was just reaching a peak of popularity after only a few years on the charts at the time of his death, Buddy Holly's contributions to rock and roll music were immense. Many people didn't realize that at the time, but some did. Four British musicians known as the Beatles did, and they recorded several of his songs and talked about him whenever Buddy Holly's name was mentioned. In fact, the Beatles' reverence for Buddy Holly was so strong that they recorded words of love at the same tempo and in the same key as Holly. Listen first to Buddy Holly's original version of Words of Love. Hold me close and tell me how you feel. Tell me love is real. And now, the Beatle version. Tell me how you feel 
Interest in Buddy Holly among musicians stayed far ahead of that of the public. Eric Clapton's band, Blind Faith, broke up in the late 1960s, but before that time they recorded their own version of Well All Right. And Don McLean told the story of American music in American Pie with Buddy Holly as the central focus of the song. But it was the Beatles who brought Buddy Holly back to the attention of many young Americans. That, that had a lot to do with it. I know I'd heard a couple of Buddy songs before the Beatles came along, but I think I really did become interested at the time of the British invasion when the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Herman's Hermits and Peter and Gordon, everybody was doing his songs. And I can remember DJs uh, playing Buddy's version and then playing the new version, and that did get me interested in, in going back and listening to the albums. That's John Goldrosen, who in the early 70s sat down to write the Buddy Holly story, the book which was translated into a movie in 1978 with Gary Busey as its star. What sparked Goldrosen's interest in Buddy Holly? Well, I first began listening to his music in the early 60s. I'm not quite old enough to go back to the 50s, and his songs meant a lot to me. There was a lot of content and impact to the songs. And I guess my desire to write a book simply grew out of the fact that there was nothing available in Buddy Holly back in the 50s. There was no Rolling Stone interviewing the people, nobody writing reviews of concerts. And there's very little written down. And somehow I, I needed to know if Buddy meant the music in the way in which I took it and what kind of person could create such music, and that's really why I went out and did the work I did on it. John traveled to Texas and spoke at length with many of Buddy Holly's friends, business associates, and relatives in his research. When I, got, when I did reach out and contact these people, I really didn't encounter any resistance. Uh, at the time, there wasn't a whole lot of interest in Holly generally, and most of these people had not been interviewed before at Lane, so it was kind of fresh for them. And once they felt that I was sincere in what I was doing, and then their attitude was that they wanted a truthful and accurate book on Buddy Ritten. Uh, people like the Crickets and his family uh, really loved Buddy Holly, and they wanted people to know what kind of person he was. And that was, to me, the most interesting part of doing the book is, sure, I found out about what song was recorded when, who was on, and all that business, but to find out what kind of a human being Buddy Holly was and to try to present that to people, that was the most challenging part. So what type of human being was Buddy Holly? I don't think I'd really thought through before I began it what kind of a person I expected to find. Uh, I did find that I, th I think the music really was a reflection of his personality and of, of his life. It wasn't just, uh, you know, a few lines strung together for commercialism. It wasn't that at all. It was really folk music of a sort. Uh, and I think what surprised me maybe is to realize how creative he was, to realize that he, he did have a command over his performances and over his recordings, that he was a thoughtful person. I, I think he's the kind of person who would have been a success at anything he turned his mind to. And now, oh boy, with Buddy Holland and his crickets. My Lord, all of my kisses, you don't know what you've been. I miss you, no boy, when you're with me, oh boy. I thought the world could say that you were the best for me. All of my life, I've been waiting, and I there'll be no hesitating, no boy. When you're with me, oh boy, I thought the world could say that you were meant for me. Stars appear and the shadows are falling. You can hear my heart calling. A little bit of love, it makes everything right. I'm gonna see my baby tonight. All my love, all of my kissing. You don't know what you've been missing, no boy. 
when you're with me, oh boy, I thought the world could say that you were missing for me. If you were to have looked at the little town of Clear Lake, Iowa, back in 1959, or even today, you might wonder how such a community could attract such a major musical star as Buddy Holly. He was asked to do this tour. Uh, this was a tour of about two weeks' length through the Midwest uh, on a package show. I believe he did the tour partly as a, as a favor to the booking agency. They needed a top name on, on the bill. Uh, I don't think he wanted to go out in the middle of the winter. He was a Texan, and this weather went to police him in any case. His wife was pregnant. He wanted some time off, but one of the reasons was as a favor to the booking agency, plus he was getting started in some new projects, and he just wanted the cash. Um, and Clear Lake was one of the stops on the tour. They played a lot of small towns like Clear Lake. It's, it's really remarkable to look at that schedule, and I couldn't even try to pronounce some of the names of the towns. I embarrass myself, but uh, from coming here again last year, and uh, I guess clear, the Clear Lake Ballroom and the others in this region, Minnesota and, and Iowa, are part of a d sort of dance hall circuit. And it's really amazing to see how people will turn out in the middle of winter for concerts like this. They did have good crowds on these concerts. And you got to remember back in the 50s that uh, rock and roll then, they couldn't always play every day in a big city. They had to fill in with some of these small towns. They didn't get that much money for these tours. So if they could draw a thousand to two thousand a night, that was a, a good crowd back then. A long time forgotten, the dreams that just fell by the As it is when anyone dies, Buddy Holly's friends and family had to pick up and keep going after that night in Clear Lake, Iowa. One of the young men who played for a time in Buddy's last band, another Texas boy named Waylon, Waylon Jennings, went on to become a country music singer and in the 1970s blossomed into a major country music superstar. At times he took Jerry Allison and Joe Malden, two of Buddy's former crickets, on tour with him. Most people who watched the Mary Tyler Moore comedy show during the 1970s were unaware that the man who wrote and sang the opening theme for that show was Sonny Curtis, who also was a member of the Crickets. Who can turn the world on with her smile? Sonny Curtis went through the late 50s writing songs like Walk Right Back for the Everly Brothers and I Fought the Law in the 1960s. He scored a hit again in 1980 with the real Buddy Holly story. The name of Bob Montgomery came up in a conversation with singer Bobby Goldsboro in 1980. Bob Montgomery was the name of a fellow who formed a country and western band with Buddy Holly before the crickets were born. But Bobby Goldsboro was talking about a Bob Montgomery who was Goldsboro's business partner, a man who co-produced some of Bobby Goldsboro's greatest hits, songs like Watching Scotty Grow and Honey. Well, Bob is, uh, he and I have a, a publishing company in Nashville, uh, House of Gold, and we, we published uh, Behind Closed Doors and a lot of the big songs over the last few years. But Bob also is a producer. He's uh, produced several hit records on other artists and uh, got uh, several records on the country charts right now that he produced. He's uh, very active in producing, writing, publishing. Where's he from? He's from Texas, originally. Is he anything to do with Buddy Holly? There was a Bob Montgomery. Bob Montgomery. He's the same guy that uh, started out with Buddy Holly writing songs and... Uh, and he knew Buddy. In fact, he tells us stories about Buddy all the time. Sonny Curtis, and uh, who's one of the of the cricket. You know, they're touring as the crickets now. Sonny Curtis and uh, and uh, who else? Uh, Jerry Allison. Allison. Jerry Allison. They're all good friends of mine. I see them a lot. 
Another singer, Bobby V, remembers Buddy Holly in a different way. It was due to Buddy Holly's death in that plane crash that Bobby V got his first big break in show business. Your band was asked to step in that night uh, at a date, uh, what, in Moorhead? That's right, in 1959, Buddy Holly died and, and he was en route to my hometown to do a concert up in Fargo. And um, the radio station had decided to go ahead with the show and ask for any local bands that would come down and help fill in. So we did, we opened the show that night and we just played that one uh, evening with that particular show. But that was, there was a guy in the audience that, that started booking us and we eventually made a record and things kind of took off from there. How old were you that night when you stepped in for the crickets and, and your band did the show? You were, what, 16, 17? I was 15. 15? Right. Your brother, Bill, was a composer and guitarist in the group. Right, he was the lead guitar player and he was kind of the, the organizer of the band. He was the oldest one in the group. and I think he was 20 or 19, something like that. So, so you were all pretty young at the time. Right, yeah. Scott Turner, a music industry professional who eventually produced Slim Whitman, Vicki Carr, Willie Nelson, and Waylon Jennings, also worked with Buddy Holly in his early years. They even wrote music together. And during a 1980 interview, he produced sheet music from a song he and Buddy wrote before either became famous. And there's the lyric, and this is the scrawling that I wrote. This was done in the backseat of a car going back from a show. <laughs> it had never been published. Now, remember, back in the 50s, we wrote what we called formula songs. You know, little uh, do you want to dance and little things like that. And this one is, uh, if you close the door to your heart and you lock your love in behind it, well, how in the world, my sweet girl, am I ever going to find it? Oh, sweet girl, don't hide your love. You got to let me know what you're thinking of. Please let me know it's not a game, and I'll put some fuel on the burning flame. And if you close <laughs> the door to your heart, and you lock your love up behind it, well, how in the world, oh, sweet girl, am I... And that's the way it uh -huh. goes. <laughs> I can see it sounds like under the oh, buddy. Yeah, it's got that. the... <laughs> you know, those, <laughs> it's all through there. Scott Turner, Waylon Jennings, Sonny Curtis, Bobby Goldsboro, Jerry Allison, Bob Montgomery, Bobby V., these are men whose lives were, in one way or another, influenced by Buddy Holly, and they went on in the music business. But what about those who dropped out along the way? Coming up, we'll tell you the story of a cricket who retired, the story of Nicky Sullivan. Well, all right, so I'm being foolish. Well, all right, let people know about the dreams and wishes you wish. In the night when lights are low Well, all right, well, all right We'll live and love with all our might Well, all right, well, all right Our lifetime love will be all right This is Ronnie King at our WGH Teen Time microphone we have with us Buddy Holly. Hi, Buddy. Hi, Ronnie. How are you? Pretty good, thank you. Buddy, could you tell us some of the big records that you and your group have had? Well, we've had uh, That'll Be the Day was our first one, and Peggy Sue followed it, and along with Oh Boy and Maybe Baby, and then uh, Early in the Morning, and then our latest one, It's So Easy. You sold quite a bit. Do you know the total number of all your records, how much they've sold so far? Uh, we don't have any idea, Ronnie, what's sold. We figure somewhere around four or five million, somewhere along there. Four or five million, tremendous volume of records. How did you happen to get started? Well, we uh, met in high school, I guess you'd say, in Lubbock, Texas. That's our hometown, and we all went to the same high school there. 
and started playing together there. Long star stay. Uh-huh. Uh, how old are you? I'm 22. Uh, listening to you, buddy, it seems like y'all could do something in jazz. Have you ever tried anything along that line? <laughs> no, we hadn't. It's strange that you should say that because uh, we've always made it a point to more or less not like jazz, actually, and it's kind of in uh, in conjunction with rock and roll in one way, and then it's kind of against it in a way. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's so true. I didn't mean to imply that your music you've played so far, I don't know, for some reason you sort of strike me as a jazz man <laughs> for some reason. Well, uh, it's probably the glasses or something. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. Brubeck, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you have any special plans for the future? No, we don't. We didn't, uh, in the way of bookings, we don't know what's coming up for us after this tour. The last night of this tour is three nights from tonight in, uh, in Richmond. And then uh, our new release will be out in a few days. It's a choral release entitled Heartbeat, back with Well All Right. Hardly. That's the number we'll have to watch for. Uh, finally, buddy, you know there's many mediums of that you can present yourself to the entertainment field, uh, such as the stage and the records, nightclubs. Uh, which do you prefer the most? I prefer the one-nighter tours, such as we're on the uh, large rhythm and blues type package shows. You feel that you can get the most out of your audience. Uh-huh. Yeah, you can. You can do your four or five songs and. And really, I mean, it feels good to play to an audience that's watching instead of an audience that's either uh, uh, interested in something else, like in nightclubs, you know, there's a lot going on that sometimes they're interested in something besides the act on stage, and then uh, in your dances, well, they're more interested in their dancing, of course. Yes, you feel your audience a lot more. Well, thank you, Buddy Holly and the Crickets. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith. Coming up, the story of a cricket who retired. Nikki Sullivan. We hope you've enjoyed part one of our Buddy Holly Remembered special and that you'll join us again for part two next time here on The Off-Ramp. Thanks for listening. The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith is produced in association with CPL Radio and the Cedarburg Public Library, Cedarburg, Wisconsin. And remember, part two of the Buddy Holly Remembrance will be next time on OK Boomer. This has been OK Boomer with Robert Rickman, and I'd like to thank Bob and Marcia Smith, Monica Bali, Dick Taylor, and Bob Bear, and Carrie, and Janice Paul. OK Boomer is broadcast from the studios of WDBX Radio in Carbondale, Illinois, And we're also broadcast on WRFN in Nashville, Tennessee. And OK Boomer is podcast, so you can find it wherever you listen to your podcasts. And oh yes, we're also on Facebook, so check us out. I'm Robert Rickman. Have a very good day.